0: Hi, I'm Nicholas Meyer, and you're listening to Drinks and, in this case, Lunch with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show, yeah.
1: you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Nicholas Meyer. He's the author of The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols, adapted from the journals of John W. Watson, MD. He's also the author of three previous Sherlock Holmes novels, including The 7% Solution. As a screenwriter and director, he is responsible for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, and Time After Time, and The Day After, and his screenwriting credits also include Final Attraction. How you doing, Nicholas? I think it's Fatal Attraction rather oh than Final God. Attraction. Oh I... <laughs>
0: I didn't, I didn't write the whole movie. I only wrote some of it. Um, but you did leave out Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country.
1: I did. Oh, really? Okay. And
0: what year did that come out? Oh, I don't know from years. Just I'm like a tree. Look at the rings under my... And that's the best way you can tell how old I am. Um, what year was... Well, you can look it up on IMDb. Uh, 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 what look, year
1: Star Trek VI. Like, okay. Yeah. Wrath of Khan. Okay, so first off, I love how in your press bio it says that you were responsible. Not that... It said in the bio, it, you know, it said director and screenwriter responsible and then said for these different films. And the one that I felt there was a lot of responsibility on was The Day After because it scared the shit out of me as a kid. It's nice to know you can swear on this program. <laughs> um,
0: I did not write The Day After. It's important to know. I, I directed it.
1: A man named Ed Hume... Hume uh, yeah. wrote the day after you. Yeah. I mean that was a vis- that was like 1983 I think and that was just like a vi- was that, it? That, yeah, that, that Yeah, you did. You did that one I remember for various
0: reasons. Um, and it remains the most watched movie ever made for television. Really?
1: 100, 100 million people in one night. And now was that HBO too that no. that No, no, that was that was a uh, network. It was ABC. I mean, I, I remember that was an event. We watched it, and then as kids, we were talking about it the next day, all scared to death. So,
0: it uh, was a remarkable, you know, when it, when I was offered to direct it, and I I was the third director I think offered it, and for a very good reason. I don't think anybody wants to make a movie or even think about nuclear war. Nuclear war is the most Important uh, question, other than the you know planetary climate change, that has ever confronted the human race. Only since 1945, our ability to totally destroy ourselves with atomic weapons, and everybody knows they're out there, but nobody wants to really think about it, including me. And I was being psychoanalyzed at the time, and I was lying on the couch, and you know, you do all the talking; they don't say anything. Um, And I was sort of trying to talk myself out of not doing this movie. And my shrink spoke up for the first time. And he said, well, I think this is where we find out who you really are. And I realized then that I was going to have to do this movie. And I cajoled a lot of people into being in it or working on it um, using much the same language when I asked my cinematographer Gain Rescher from Star Trek 2 I said we're going to do this movie and I told him what it was and he said oh no, no 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 don't ask me to do that and I said let me get this straight the one time this town is inviting you to put your work in the service of your beliefs you're going to pass and bitch about stuff at dinner parties instead I think this is where we find out who you really are and, and that jawboned a lot of people into into doing it. Thank you. Um, and um, you know, it sort of barely made it on the air. I, there was there was such a, a a passionate counterattack from the conservative right uh, that this movie was aiding the Soviet Union in some way. I don't know what that way was. Um, But the New York Post called me a traitor uh, on their editorial page, which, by the way, sometimes is indistinguished from the rest of their pages. Uh, Why is Nicholas Meyer doing Yuri Andropov's work for him? Go figure. Uh, And I certainly... And and all the sponsors dropped out. Yeah, there were no sponsors for uh, Commodore computer. Commodore computers or something. I think it was all. And so it was commercial free on network television <laughs> okay. and I I watched it with my then fiance, and I couldn't imagine anybody sitting through it and the next day it turned out that a hundred million people had watched it and then the press went gleefully out to them and said did this movie change your mind about nuclear war one way or the other and then came rather happily back to me with their microphones and said well according to our day after day after survey your movie didn't change anybody's mind what do you have to say to that and I put the best face on it that I could I said well I don't think people change their minds overnight I don't think they'd admit that it was a TV movie that did it if, even if they did change their minds and who knows what people really think anyway? most people do they really know but you know privately i've you know I said well it's a little early to tell, but it did apparently change at least one person's mind very quickly, and that person happened to be Ronald Reagan, the President of the United States, who had come to uh, office uh, believing in a winnable nuclear war and he, he, he got very upset I don't know what that beeping is but it isn't me uh, and uh, eventually went to Reykjavik and signed the intermediate range weapons treaty with Mikhail Gorbachev um, the treaty that Donald
1: Trump has just backed out of wow, alright, did you have any idea that that would be that type of impact not at all,
0: not at all I was speaking at um, Oxford because I lived in England for a while and and a a kid came up to me and had Reagan's memoir with him and said, were you aware of this? And he showed me the pages where Reagan had written about it and I I said no and I I heard amazing stories about the day after, just amazing. There was a, a general on Castro's staff who said that the Cuban Missile Crisis had not been real to him until he had seen the movie wow. and this tells you something about people's inability to picture something um, and reagan uh, I, I had knew for a while reagan's biographer edmund morris and edmund morris won the pulitzer prize for his life of teddy roosevelt the rise of theodore roosevelt but he lived in the white house as reagan's biographer for three years and he said the only time that he ever saw Reagan flip out was after he saw the day after. And he just,
1: he, he fell to pieces, apparently. Well, me and the whole population thanks you for that. <laughs> That's really cool. Time to remake it. Time to remake the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All the sponsors that lost out on what could have been a great viewership if they just would have stayed in on the day after. This is true. They
0: all bailed, um, and and they all had names with "general" in them: General Motors, General Foods, General Mills. All the generals ran
1: away. So yeah, it's yeah, um, and uh, there were the possibility of a remake, which just it seems it seems ripe for a remake. I don't. This is something that should be obvious. I don't know, but so many things seem obvious to me, and they're not. I get letters or emails every week,
0: from, mainly from scientists, asking me to remake the movie on the theory that there's basically one person who needs to see this. But that person, I don't think, ever watches things
1: that aren't about him. So I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a weird time we live in. Man, I thought it was weird in Reagan years and then it was weird in the Bush years. And then it was just like, it can't get any weirder than this. And here we are. (laughs) Yes, it's a very weird time.
0: This country, I think, is being tested as it hasn't been since the Civil
1: War. Oh, and then I so when I intro'd you, I did I said final attraction, not fatal attraction. That might have been a slip because I'm a guy who maybe wants his final attraction in life, so I can find the you know the lady that takes me through to the end. Maybe could that be the explanation for my slippage? Well, that's a good question. Final attraction. Final attraction is
0: a nice title.
1: It's almost like, it, and then it could be instead of a love story of like, you know, they got together through all, through all this conflict and all this mayhem and lived happily ever after, this will be the happily ever after part, which won't be happily ever after. It'll be a lot of work, probably a lot of tedium, uh, just showing what life is after you find your loved one or whatever.
0: Well, Orson Welles once said that whether a story is happy or sad, or comedy or tragedy depends on where you choose to end it where you put the frame around it so there was a musical many years ago called The Fantastics that ran forever it was based on a play by Edmund Rostand the guy who wrote Cyrano and it was about two families who were feuding over their backyards and while they're feuding the son and daughter of the t- two families fall in love Romeo and Juliet style what they don't know is that the feud is fake it was just to get them to fall in love (laughs) because whenever you say no to kids you you know Um, and it was a very droll musical and the first act ends very happily and the second act is all about what happens after happily ever after and there's another musical, Stephen Sondheim, um, called Into the Woods. When the first act of Into the Woods ends happily. Everything is happy. And
1: then act two is what happens after happily ever after? Good question. It's always the one I'm trying to explore because I really love it when, um, like sometimes I'll talk to uh, authors and who have, who have like their first or second book out. And so their marriages or their relationships change. Like before my first book came out, I got a divorce. And so that, that just fascinates me how you, it sometimes- your first book? Uh, it's called Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk. So it, yeah, I grew up a Jehovah's Witness and I wrote a love story set in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Wow, <laughs> yeah. that sounds really interesting. <laughs> And then I got a divorce out of it, and it. And then I find out, it, either like couples, and you know, they'll come together stronger when a uh, first book or something like that comes out, or a film, or the, or they'll break apart. And it's, uh, and I guess because it's just such heightened um, senses and so much going on when when kind of life changing thing has happens, so it's it's a good it's a good test for a relationship so far.
0: My new novel has not caused a rupture between me and my girlfriend. I'm very happy to report, possibly because the adventure of the Peculiar Protocols is dedicated
1: to her, but I covered myself. So the lesson there is dedicate your book to your girlfriend, fiancé, or wife, or lover, and you'll probably stick it through, but before you get it published it's how how it how was some um, she when like when you're work when you're working on stuff she realizes you're a writer so does yeah i had to break it to her <laughs> <laughs> what are
0: you doing there what are you doing in that room all day with the door closed well you
1: make it sound pretty bad she's she was hoping for uh pornography addiction and then she got no wait, you're a novelist? No. She's adjusted very well. <laughs> yeah. It, that's good to know. I'm always I'm always happy about that. I so like reading her my stuff because she's
0: unquestioning approval. This is great, honey. And I, even though I realize that she can't be you know what un- un- and objective what and nobody would call objective but it's very nice to get that kind of encouragement and support and keeps you going and can't wait to show her this can't wait to show her that
1: also she is, she is your first reader yeah and then after her uh who do you give it to what's that i pray her the deluge yeah yeah
0: then real people read it yeah. and they go what the hell is this right. uh,
1: so you see so you have a group of people you have a group of friends or that, that are your readers and you're just like alright give this a go yes I give my
0: writing whether it's screenplays or uh, when I get around to writing a book to friends but I don't want friends who are just going to yes, you know. Disraeli said that a biography should be written by an enemy. And I don't think it's a cynical remark. I think he what he meant is that if an enemy gives you credit for something, chances are you earned it. And so what I want is somebody who is going to go to town on it somebody who is not necessarily disposed to be interested in the topic or a fan, but somebody who will try to be a disinterested reader and say, well, I didn't understand this, or this started too slowly, or on the adventures of the Peculiar Protocols, I was told by certain people in early drafts of the book, well, it starts too slowly. And somebody said, uh, a friend of mine, still a friend of mine, said, "Uh, I I think you need like a, a dead body kind of earlier. And I said, that's the most ridiculous, stupid thing I've ever heard. And... After the book got turned down by about five publishers, I was sitting in the tub without any water and I uh, can't remember. But anyway, I thought, wait a minute, there should be a body
1: earlier and then I figured out whose body it was and I was very grateful. It's intriguing about the uh, the submission process to publishers or to agents because when when sometimes they'll give you really good notes, sometimes they won't. But if but if someone gives you a note like that, and then you get the rejections, it, it's kind of a litmus test of wait a second, this might need a rewrite. Maybe they know what they're talking about.
0: And what's interesting was that my friend is not. He's not a writer. And he wasn't dealing with any of the specific things that were in the book. He just said, Gosh, wouldn't it be cool if there was like a body? I don't know what like a body is, but.
1: Um, and I. And he was right. It's, yeah, because sometimes if we, uh, if we send it to, you know. Our, our writer friends who are too good at the craft, they, they may they may lose elements that readers would um, go. Oh no, you know it'd be you know it'd be cool there. I mean, just a reader that's gonna read it for um, entertainment, not like we do where we're sitting there, you know, not not uh, not going after the the publication, but loving the craft of writing so much where we want where we want things to be a certain way. Well, my friend Gary, who made this suggestion,
0: is a producer. He's in, he's, years ago, he was my agent, and then he became a film studio executive, and then he became a producer. So he's not, strictly speaking, an amateur. Yeah. Um, and I initially dismissed his critique... By saying, "Look, this is a novel; it's not a movie," and you're applying sort of movie criteria to it, and then I realized, "Yeah, but he's still right."
1: Uh, so there's there's a lot to um, I I have found like between screenwriting and uh, and doing the novel. I mean, storytelling in general, we really have to have our characters and our and our you know the motivations in play. There's a lot of similarities to it. I, yeah, I guess I'm just saying that. <laughs> I guess you are. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Not a
0: lot goes by me, I'll tell you. Um, I can't
1: tell. Have you read the book? Did you? Did, I, I read the first few chapters. I, I've, been re, I've been stacking interviews, so I apologize in reverse and advance. <laughs> now I know all I need to know. <laughs> Um, what was I going to ask you? Now that I'm on the spot and blushing, like, <laughs> fortunately they don't know I'm blushing on the podcast. So that's you know. I don't know you're blushing either. You've got this beard.
0: Blushing <laughs> behind the beard.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the, I guess there's a, there's a reason to hide behind facial hairs. Uh, I've tried. I've had beards at various times, but they're
0: they're not becoming to me like yours is becoming to you. Mine is like, it looks like a Brillo pad or something. It's its not a successful
1: adornment. But how, how long did have you let the beard grow? Did you give it enough time to go beyond Brillo pad? I put up with it for two or three days. Um, no, I put up with it for,
0: you know, a month or something. And, and I was always scratching it. It
1: was always you got to get past the scratch. Once you get past the scratch and then it gets soft, then then you're on board. Oh, really? Maybe I should try again. I highly suggest it. You should join us. <laughs> the, the, the beard boys. <laughs> when, um... What, what did you... I, I'm assuming you started with screenwriting, but am I wrong by that? Uh, like, what came first for you as a storyteller? Well... I started writing when I was about five years old,
0: and I used to tell my father stories, and he would write them down.
1: And the stories—how cool is that? So your dad was dictating. Your, your dad was transcribing the stories you were dictating. Does, are those stories still around? There was a little book that we that you know was a handwritten thing. Everything was handwritten.
0: That's somewhere. I don't know where it is. But it was stories about our how our dog would carry the newspaper home from the grocery store in her mouth. And she knew how to do that. And then, I don't remember how old I was, but this couldn't have been more than a year after I'd started doing this, that my father said that, listen, it's time for you to do your own writing. Um... So I was learning how to write by making up my own sort of, you know, C-spot-run type stories. Um, and then I would imitate the stories I was reading, and I, I read everything, and I still read everything. I just, I just read and read and read. And I have a good memory, so I remember a lot of what I read. But whether it was the Hardy Boys or Alice in Wonderland or Homer or the Three Musketeers or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I just kept reading. And then I would write imitations of what I was reading. And when I was about 11, I guess, he gave me a one-volume, complete, all the Sherlock Holmes stories. Oh, wow. 60 stories. And... I I gobbled them up. Uh, I don't. I can't remember gobbling them up. It's been too long ago. But I know sort of my sort of personality type. I must have just gorged on these fifty-six short stories and four novellas, and um, then you know was very blue when it was over when they were over, and I. I'm by no means the first person to start writing my own Sherlock Holmes stuff. Um, Michael Shabon says that all fiction is fan fiction. Oh, interesting. Makes sense. Um he also said that he became a writer after he read The 7% Solution that was his
1: Really? Yep. Oh, oh. that's a that's a good um That's
0: on my website. Is it?
1: <laughs> I would put yeah. I would not only put that on my website, I'd tattoo it across my chest, I think. I don't have any tattoos, but if, if uh, you know, if he was inspired to write, I mean, I, I love the Wonder Boys. It's one of my favorite. He's a wonderful writer, no question. The, um, so the obsession with Sherlock Holmes happened many... Are you looking for that Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, did I go over it? No. Oh, here it is. It's in between your... Your phone is in between your legs. Is that that where you usually keep your phone? Just in case
0: conversation runs dry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, for the podcast listeners out there, Nicholas is uh, look, looking up the uh, the quote for me from Michael Chabon. I
0: found it. All right. Oh, wow. There
1: we go. Uh, Reading Nicholas, Nicholas Meyer's very first Sherlock Holmes adventure, The 7% Solution, made me decide to become a writer. Reading his latest simply made me a delighted and satisfied reader.
0: Yes. And that was not written by my mother. That was written by Michael yeah. Chabon, yeah.
1: And he didn't even have to do it. That was volunteer. Yes, it was voluntary. It was very nice of him. Yeah. Have you met him before? I've never met him. Wow. wow. Wait, um, are you touring this book? Will you be up like in the Bay Area? Maybe? Yeah. Okay. I will be, yeah. yeah. He's I, down here now. Oh, is he down here now? He's working on Star Trek Discovery. Oh, okay. So you guys have to meet. Why, why, why has this not happened? I'm so confused one of us one of us must be shy. <laughs> I don't think it's you <laughs> or is it <laughs> We'll find out okay. mm. all right, um, back to matters at hand so uh so you you were writing the sherlock Holmes uh fiction well, what happened? You know, when I was a kid, it was.
0: I had this idea when I was a kid. When I was a kid growing up in New York, My Fair Lady was all the rage. And I saw My Fair Lady, and I probably read Shaw's play Pygmalion, which is the source material for My Fair Lady. And My Fair Lady, Pygmalion, is a story of a sort of um, querulous. Uh, a professor who deduces things where people come from by the way they talk. He's very obsessed with how people speak, and he says, he says oh, yeah, you're from here, you're from there. And he, he says, I can place a person in London within a mile on the basis of their accent. That's what the play is about. And he meets uh, a guy who has just come back from uh India, and they become roommates, a Colonel Pickering and a Henry Higgins, and they live at 27a Wimpole Street in a house that's run by a Mrs. Pierce, the landlady or the lady who runs the place. And it occurred to me when I saw the play, the musical, that Bernard Shaw and Lerner and Lowe, We're ripping off Sherlock Holmes, who lives with Dr. Watson, who's just back from Afghanistan in 221B Baker Street in a house that's run by Mrs. Hudson. Um, And the only difference between Holmes and Higgins, even their initials are very similar, is that Henry Higgins is a speech detective and Holmes is an everything detective, but their sidekick Colonel Pickering or Dr. Watson is there to be admiring and stuff. And I thought, well, if Pygmalion made a great musical, Sherlock Holmes should make an even greater musical because that would be the original. And I went around with this idea, age 15. And my parents took me to a cocktail party, and I met this Broadway producer. And I, you know, you can see how bashful I am, I... So I, I was telling him my idea, and if, if I'd had any of Sherlock Holmes's powers of observation, I might have noticed this guy was really listening to what I was saying. And then, like, a couple of weeks later, I see in the New York Times gossip section that this man is negotiating with the Conan Doyle estate to produce the musical, which was subsequently titled Baker Street, with Fritz Weaver and Inga Swenson. And I went to my father, you know, crying out from the heart, and he said, well, what do you want? You're a kid, and you shot off your mouth. Um, anyway, that sort of put me off Holmes for a while, but after I moved to California in the 19, 1971, I discovered, I think more or less by accident, all the literature about Sherlock Holmes. And so I was reading all these things, homes and music, homes and women, homes and drugs. I'm reading all this stuff. And when I was in high school, people would say to me, oh, your, your old man's a shrink. Is he a Freudian? And I didn't know. So I said, pop, are you a Freudian? And he said, "That's a silly question. And I said, why, why is it a silly question? And he said, because it's no more possible to discuss The history of psychoanalysis without beginning with Freud. It's like trying to discuss the history of America, the discovery of America without starting with the Vikings or Columbus. But to suppose that nothing's happened since the Vikings is to be pretty rigid pretty doctrinaire. When a patient comes to see me, I listen to what they say, I listen to how they say it, I'm very curious as to what they don't say. I'm interested in their body language, are they on time? You know, uh, what are they wearing? I'm in short searching for clues from them as to why they're not happy. And I said, gee, that sounds like detective work, what you're talking about. And he said, well, it is rather like detective work. And suddenly this light bulb goes off in my head, you know, I'm 14 years old. I wonder how much Arthur Conan Doyle knew about the life and writing of Sigmund Freud. And the first thing you realize is, well, they're both doctors, and they both died in the same town within nine years of each other. And Holmes is a cocaine addict, and Freud was a cocaine user. And these coincidences begin to sort of pile up. And again, it takes me a long time to Figure out anything, so it's another ten years before I wrote the seven percent solution. But that's sort of where it where it began, and um, it's fun to write in the manner of, you know, Sherlock Holmes or Arthur Conan Doyle or Victorian prose. Robert Louis Stevenson, Charles Dickens, H. Ryder Haggard, uh, George Eliot. Those pe- those people are Anthony Hope. Uh, fun to imitate and so I I was writing these things and then you have to sort of pretend to be Dr. Watson or you have to pretend to be Arthur Conan Doyle pretending to be Dr. Watson and I remember I, I got off a plane on the first book tour and somebody said how does it feel to be a forger and it had not occurred to me that I was a forger but then I got very interested in forgery And I've been now lifelong interested in forgery and the questions that forgery poses, what's real, what's the difference between a forgery and a copy, something you can't see, the intention, and so on. And if you're interested in forgery, it isn't long before you come across the most vicious and destructive forgery of all time. And when I did, it occurred to me that if you, if it takes a thief to catch a thief, maybe it might take a forger to expose a forger. And that's where the adventure of the
1: Peculiar Protocols was born. Well, I really, <clears throat> I really like that. There, there's like so much to dissect there. I really love the, um, what your dad said about um being a psych- psychoanalyst and that how it was detective work, I almost feel like even even when're even when we're like just talking and you know just talking in general to people, we're almost doing our own detective work in our minds to see if the person is um, if the person is laughing, is either laughing at our jokes or is not you know not happy talking to us or' we're, we're, we're always looking for clues amongst ourselves as humans. Not only do we do
0: it in live interactions, but nowadays you do it on a computer. You're meeting somebody, and before you meet them, you Google them, find out, you know, whatever you can find out. But the whole ability to—Holmes is always telling Watson, you know, you see but you don't observe, or you you observe but you don't see— and Holmes is a very good observer and a very good listener. Freud is, is it, for Freud, the whole thing is about listening. What are people saying? How are they saying it? And what are they not saying it? Um, and what can you infer from all of that information? And I think that. I I see a lot but I don't necessarily understand what I'm seeing right I think I know a lot but I don't necessarily understand a lot my girlfriend I don't she doesn't know as much as me I mean she's she knows a lot but she understands everything and she sees more when we go for walks I'm not seeing anything. I'm seeing generalities, there's a sky, there's houses, there's a tree. And she says, look at this plant, look at the trim on that house. And I realize, I am not seeing, I am not seeing the way Holmes would see. And you're able to infer on
1: the basis of what you see. But if you're not really seeing, you can't infer that much. So when you're working on, when you're working on Holmes, um, and getting into his character, it's, it's, uh, it's almost, ta- it's, it's like you have to probably do a lot of extra work to s- be in his head. I have to pretend that I can see. Yeah. <laughs> or that. <laughs> I also
0: have to pretend that I am a 19th or early 20th century Englishman. A doctor who's seen a- action in Afghanistan, been wounded. Um, I always hated most Sherlock Holmes movies, could never stand them. They were always camp to me. And one of the chief features of the campiness was portraying Watson as an idiot. So I, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, I thought, what is that? Why does a genius wanna hang out with a buffoon? It, it doesn't make any sense. Holmes is actually quite vain. He wants the admiration of a regular person, not a sub-regular person. So one of the impetus or impeti for writing The 7% Solution was as a kind of corrective to depict Watson as the kind of guy that you'd want in your corner in a tough situation
1: not as a jerk uh, and I also and I also liked how someone someone referred to you as a forger probably as an insult they, they were coming up to you and it was that like in an insultive way is that
0: hang on one second <laughs> <the shooting>.
1: yeah yeah <laughs> um.
0: was a young reporter. I don't think he was insulting so much as sort of maybe challenging. You know, how do you deal with this? And he'd given it some thought, and it seemed an opening conversational gambit. And in a way it was, because I thought, whoa, well, I guess technically you're kind of right. And my only defense, which was... Maybe a little feeble, I said. Well, it doesn't actually say by Nicholas Meyer. None of them do. It always says as edited by Nicholas Meyer. But but still, evidently, I'm pretending uh, to have found this manuscript. I'm pretending to have, you know, that Doctor Watson wrote it, and I'm trying to make like I'm um, somebody from a hundred and some odd years earlier, which is like a tone-deaf person trying to you know, hum a tune and prevent you from knowing that they can't hear. You know, one clinker is all it takes. And you go, wait a minute, you're deaf.
1: I feel deaf sometimes. Not from hearing, but just from when it gets from my ears to my brain. <laughs> it takes me some... <laughs> it's a process. When... um. When, when did you get in? When did you get into screenwriting? What, what was the impetus for that? And then, and is that what brought you to Los Angeles?
0: Making movies and directing movies is what brought me to Los Angeles. I was, among other things, again introduced by my father to Jules Verne, and I was crazy about Jules Verne. I was crazy about Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, which to this day I think is the best movie Walt Disney ever produced. Um, And I loved the novel Around the World in 80 Days. And when I was 11, I was taken to see the Mike Todd Around the World in 80 Days. And I had a religious experience. I was Saul of Tarsus struck blind on the road to Damascus. This was it. Movies. And there was a program booklet that came with the movie. And there were articles about the making of the movie. And one was an article about Mike Todd had never produced a movie. This was his first movie. It was also his last because he was killed in a plane crash. Um, but it, it was a sort of sarcastic article designed to sort of numb you with the statistics. All you need to produce a movie is $6 million and and 13,000 people in eight countries. and you know. But the headline of the article in the little booklet was... You too can make a motion picture. No previous experience necessary. I, was, I still have the booklet. And I'm 11, and I, I didn't get the sarcasm. I just got the headline. You too can make a motion picture. No previous experience necessary. So I said to my dad, I want to make a movie. And we had an 8 millimeter Revere wind-up home movie camera. And I, I said, will you help me? And the movie I wanted to make, of course, was the movie I had just seen. <laughs> uh, I was gonna play Phileas Fogg. My best friend, who grew up to edit my movies, uh-huh. played Passepartout. Yeah. And it took us five years. My father was the sort of director of this thing, and we filmed on weekends, we filmed on you know, Easter vacation, we filmed over summers. And in somewhat disjointed, like a real movie. And five years later, we had a movie about an hour long, eight millimeter. And I was hooked on the whole process. Um, so I went to the University of Iowa, and I studied theater and film and English literature. Then I went back to New York and found a job working at Paramount Pictures in their publicity department. Don't ask. And. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I I was writing but I wasn't really getting anywhere and I decided that I should go to Los Angeles where I'd never been and never heard anything good because people who go to Los Angeles like it they stay but the people who don't like it come back and tell you how awful it is so I finally said I'm going to try this and I came out here uh, you know with enough money that I'd saved up to last me about six months and I was very fortunate to get a an agent and one thing is you know sort of led to another and I was starting to make some headway and write a couple of TV movies and um, was gonna work my way up to directing but then the writers guild went on strike and you weren't allowed to write screenplays, you picketed. That's an interesting experience. Um, and then my friend said, well, now that you can't write screenplays, you can write that Sherlock Holmes book you keep talking about, Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud. So I did. Um, and I, when it was done, I thought, well, this is publishable. This is publishable. Did I dream, did I have any foreknowledge that it would become the number one best-selling novel in the United States for 40 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list? Did I dream that it would become a movie and that my screenplay would be nominated for an Oscar and all the rest? No. Who dreams that? I thought it was publishable. Um, But I, I wrote from the heart. And basically, I still do. It's a, I. I don't know how to fake an erection. You either. <laughs> you have to
1: sort of believe it. <laughs> you don't have to fake an erection. It Has to be the title of uh, your your uh, biography that um, you know where you go into uh, making mo- you know <laughs> making movies. I published my memoir
0: in two thousand nine. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, it's called The View from the Bridge. Memories of Star Trek and a Life in Hollywood, and it's basically a professional memoir. And I keep thinking of titles for what the next volume will be called. You know, fortunately the body was still warm. That was one title. <laughs> Hanging by a thread. Yeah. Maintenance. Um. And and uh, faking an erection. Yeah.
1: Sweating bullets. That was another one. Yeah, yeah. Sweating bullets while faking an erection right. <laughs> Faking an erection
0: that if you can fake an erection you'd probably do
1: anything <laughs> yeah. um. Oh I was gonna ask you about uh, so you you filmed this over five years the your first film like continuity wise as you as you're acting you're also you're also growing at that time growing and shrinking it's hilarious to see the finished really? editing yeah and it, and is, you do you still have that film you do oh, yeah yeah it's a classic yeah. there's a copy in the library of congress really but there's no way is there any way we
0: can find it or no the only way you can find it is if i you know show you my dvd
1: transfer okay cool. um so I'll just come back to your place. you want to take the drive? <laughs> to Santa Monica. You bet, it's quite a trip. <laughs> um, but that's fantastic. I did, yeah, that I would just love to see the continuity of that the, the acting uh the actors going through puberty. Phileas Fili- Fili- Fogg grows up uh-huh. and down. <laughs> now do but actually that probably helped you a lot when it came to directing because then you knew um, you kind of knew as you were doing your shots out of order how important it was to it's keep big, it there's no question
0: that making that little movie was an enormous learning experience yeah. um, not only shooting but organizing it because you know I started the idea came to me when I was 11 we didn't start shooting anything till
1: I was 12 and then finished when I was about 17 Wow uh, so it went on and on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. The uh, and that, and that's another uh, what do you call it? Uh, that's a just do it type thing. You know what? If you're passionate about it, just go, just do it, and then you learn. There's something to be said for
0: trying new things, or as my girlfriend says, mixing it up. Yeah. She says, mix it up, yeah. and do things that you know. Write about what you don't know. Yeah, yeah. And take chances I mean obviously this does not apply to flying small aircraft Uh, but in a lot of other ways you could do worse than just you know sort of push yourself a little bit and get out of your, your comfort zone and stuff you know I didn't formally go to film school I was in the theater department I directed plays on the radio so when I did time after time at Warner Brothers I had never directed a feature film. Wow.
1: No, was that with uh, Christopher Reeve? Is it that the- certainly was Oh. Not. No, no, no. Okay, what am I thinking? No, that was you haven't done your homework. I no, man. I you wouldn't believe how much homework I don't do. Yeah. Yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me red-handed. <laughs> so, doing your so directing your first feature, what uh what, what Taking from the theater was it was did that ha- was that a well, it
0: made me um, th- there were things I brought to it that were strengths uh-huh. I was very good at working with actors I am very good um, i'm very good in the writing department the screenplay department I'm good in the editing yeah. when you edit tape for radio plays and stuff I'm sure you know where the dead air is and how to juxtapose... Um, you know tracks and yeah. where I was always weakest was with the camera uh-huh. while Steven Spielberg was playing with a camera I was playing with a typewriter yeah. and you can and you can tell um, but uh, time after time was a wonderful experience it's having its 40th anniversary or something and it's how Malcolm McDowell met Mary Steenburgen, so I'm responsible for a couple of children. Oh wow! Um, and it's being shown at a sci-fi festival in Austin next month, um, and the Seven Percent Solution will be screened at the Hammer uh, oh, cool. Theater uh, on November the November the eighth, okay. which is a Friday, yeah. and at that point. I'll also be launching the book, this, "The Adventure of the Peculiar
1: Protocols." That's great. What um, are you working on? What, no, I had this other question. Directing um, time after time, and then now as a director and work. And with all your experience, is there something you wished you knew when you were doing time after time, where you were just like, "Oh man, if I did that, it would have changed things?" When I look at the movie now,
0: I am embarrassed by how crude a lot of the filmmaking is. Most people don't notice it for the simple reason that the acting is so strong and the script is so terrific. It was not my original idea, by the way. Uh, it, I Somebody else a man named Carl Alexander came up with the idea of it and I optioned his idea. Um, But when I look at it, all I can see, and I suspect most directors look at their films and all you see is the mistakes you made. Um, When I look at The 7% Solution, I see all the mistakes I made as a screenwriter. Um, I haven't directed in years, in 1993 my wife died of breast cancer and i had a three-year-old and a six-year-old to raise so i stopped directing and just did the writing and i was lucky that i had that second string to my bow that i could do that so i don't you know i don't direct now um
1: i just mainly write And um, I mean, I haven't directed, but I've seen the, I've been on the sets and I've seen the directors losing sleep for forever. And I haven't even seen them in pre-production. So it seems like one of those. Very backbreaking stuff. There
0: is no sleep and there is actually nothing else but the film. And you could, you know, find out that, you know, Nebraska has been set on fire and your first thought is, is this good or bad for the movie? <laughs> yeah. It sounds pretty heartless. Yeah. When we did Star Trek VI, we, uh, the Klingons were always our stand-in for the Russians. Okay. And we Star Trek VI is about a coup d'etat in the Klingon world and we were we were filming the coup d'etat in the klingon world before the coup d'etat occurred in russia so mikhail gorbachev disappeared while we were in the cutting room nobody knew whether he was dead or alive and i blush to say that nobody was sparing a thought for mr Gorbachev's actual fate, the question was, was this good or bad for the movie and how fast could we get the thing in theaters to reflect what was actually happening? You know, I'm happy to say that Mr. Gorbachev is still alive and that we you know, that he got through it but at the time those were not the charitable concerns that uh, characterized our thinking.
1: I almost feel like the, the, the the phenomenal undertaking of actually doing a movie where every thought in your brain has to be on the completion of that movie. So it makes a lot of sense where it's that's just like, what, what are we doing next? Because it's no sleep. Just get, you know, what's next? What's the next shot? Get this in the can. Great. You know, it's- no question. Yeah. One of the
0: things that I noticed was I really discovered a relationship between an editor, meaning a film editor, and a psychoanalyst. Because if you're in formal psychoanalysis, the analyst doesn't talk. But he does play back for you your material. So if I were filming this scene between us now and I'd get wide angles and close-ups and over the shoulder and a close-up of the mic and my disappearing salad and whatever and, and there would be wires all over the place and a 100 crew people standing out of camera range looking and I'd be worried about the weather and is it clouding over and I see producers looking at their watches. In short, I'm doggedly pressing ahead with shot after shot of Tony and Nick talking, da-da-da-da-da, but I'm not really seeing the totality of what I'm getting. I'm just getting it.
1: Yeah.
0: And eventually, my editor will take these disparate pieces of film and stick them together in the order that seems best to him. And if he is a good editor, and if he understands the objective of the scene and the movie to which it belongs, when he plays it back, I will recognize it. I will say yeah that's it I might want to tweak it a bit and say you know you missed the you know close-up of the poison going into the pill but the pill going into the glass of water whatever it is but otherwise you know and and I, I I like when Tony you know blinked his eyes before he whatever you know all that is good if he's a bad editor or the wrong editor for this project you look at the result of these film pieces put together and you'd you you don't recognize it you go i mm, i don't know and and by the way there's a third possibility which is maybe you're just not used to what he came up with wasn't what you imagined but it it might be better it might be more interesting anyway you go to see the shrink you lie down on the couch I'm talking about formal analysis and you basically turn over the dailies of your head You're giving him close-ups, you're giving him flashbacks, you're giving him present-day narrative, you're asking questions, whatever. You're just throwing stuff at him. And at the end of the hour, he or she will say, today you seem to be talking about, and then they hook it all up for you. And if they're a good shrink, and if they understand what you're all about, you recognize it. You go, oh my goodness, yes, oh, isn't that something? Woof. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see that juxtaposition. Yeah, you're right. Or if they're not the shrink for you, you go, no, 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 no. It doesn't ring a bell at all. Well, there's always that third possibility you drive away and you go, you know what? I think he had a point. Um, But I, I mean, I don't know why I'm giving you that comparison, but it's,
1: Yeah, no, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of uh, psychotherapy because I've been in and out of therapy for decades. So I. Did Did you get time off for good behavior? (laughs) Today I did. Yes, (laughs) I got time off and a pill. That pill that you put in my water that 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 helped. I I appreciate that, Uh, Nick Nicholas. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. I hope people go out and buy the Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. I hope they do too. Nicholas Meyer on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, The Adventure of the Peculiar. (laughs) Nicholas Meyer on Drinks with Tony. Hey, check out his new book, The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. And after we finished taping this episode, a random stranger walked up to Nicholas and said, Live long and prosper. And Nicholas replied, thank you. I was like, does this happen a lot? And a Nicholas said, yes, which is amazing because most people come up to me and they say, is that a chicken bone in your goatee? All right. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you tuning into the show and downloading the podcast. Have a great weekend. I will see you next week on Drinks with Tony.